Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Lots of things are better together. Hockey, food, golf. How about a cold one on the patio during a nice spring day? But if you really want to take things to the next level, drink some Labatt Blue Lights with your friends and live life to the power of we. Always enjoy responsibly. Beer, Labatt USA, Buffalo, New York. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the GM Shuffle. You can't run a franchise into the ground more than this guy has done. I mean, it's pretty clear. And he doesn't understand how to be an owner. And he has never understood how to be an owner. You're listening to the GM Shuffle with Michael Lombardi, presented by DraftKings and VSIN. Here is Femi Abebefe. Welcome to another edition of the GM Shuffle with Michael Lombardi, presented by DraftKings and Visa. I'm your host, Femi Abebefe. Michael, minicamp is over. Now we're about a month or about five weeks away from training camp when this thing really gets going. But the offseason, kicking away nonetheless. No, it's good. You know, we get a little vacation time. You get away. I got away. So it's good. It's good to be back, Femi. Uh, it's right around the corner. You know, I, I think uh, this is the, the quiet time, although we still have a lot of things to clear up before we get mm-hmm. to the kickoff of the uh, preseason and then the, the regular season. I think we're like 80-some days away, so it's going to be it, – it'll go by pretty quickly. Yeah, once we get through the month of July, it'll be all systems go around the National Football League. As always, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcast. Tweet at us as well. We love to hear from you guys and your thoughts about the podcast. Any questions you might have, especially for Michael, you can find him on Twitter at MLombardiNFL. You can find me at Femi Abebefe, our producer Stephen Bond, back with us on the ones and twos as always. But Michael, let's start here with the quarterback, one Baker Mayfield, the former number one overall pick in the 2018 draft. Now, last week we spoke about how the trade talks were heating up between the Browns and the Carolina Panthers. But as of this week, Josina Anderson over at CBS Sports has reported that the Seattle Seahawks have a little bit of interest in Baker Mayfield. Are you hearing the same? And what do you make of probably a Mayfield or possibly, I should say, a Mayfield to the Pacific Northwest sort of a venture here? For this season, you know, the one thing I, I was fortunate enough to learn from Al Davis is to never look linear on on some report, right? So you never say, okay, this person has reported this, and then the next step is that. There's always a motivation and always try to peel back the layers. And Josina has a lot of sources, and she's really wired in the Cleveland organization as she breaks stuff in there most of the time. Rarely does she have an influence in Seattle. One of the things you do in the league is you know who talks to who. Like a reporter breaks news from Tennessee. Okay, that reporter has somebody in the building. You kind of can figure it out. Uh, somebody breaks news in New England. They have somebody in the building. They figure it out. You know, the the, the guys that have the most, the Schefters, the Rappaport, they kind of have somebody in all the buildings and in the league offices. But when you get some of these other ones, you got to go back and peel back the layer. So mm-hmm. to me, what I think is happening is I think it, this is a an opportunity where the Browns are wanting to finalize this deal with Carolina. And there's a to- and there's kind of a, a gridlock. I think the Browns and Carolina have reached some conclusion on where it's going. Again, this is about money, as the great Johnny Sachs said, again with the money, again with the <laughs> money, right? So... You know, what are they trying to do with Baker? What's going on? And I think what they're trying, I think what this report is, is to send a message to the Panthers hey, it's now, let's get this done quickly. Do I think Seattle's in it? No, I really don't. I mean, John Snyder loved Drew Locke coming out. Like, what has changed between now and the OTAs to make all of a sudden to make Seattle into it? It just does, it seems more like a, a ploy by the Browns to try to get some interest. And and 
we'll see if that holds up. And I think it be, it behooves the Panthers to try to close the gap as quickly as they can if they mm-hmm. want to do that. Uh, whatever the gap is, whether the gap's between Mayfield and incentives or Mayfield and the contract, I don't think the gap is between the Browns and and the Panthers. I think that's pretty much worked out. I gotcha. think this is about the Panthers and Mayfield. That's interesting because it almost, to me, it feels like you think that Carolina would be more eager to get this thing done uh, in the sense that they want to get their quarterback in. Now, minicamp is gone, so they can't get those minicamp reps back. They can only get him in now for training camp. Does it surprise you that the Carolina is just, I mean, I guess this is just kind of the negotiation, how things work out of a game of chicken of, okay, we'll wait as long as possible to see if you budge or if we budge type of thing. But it is, it's almost a little surprising to me that Carolina would not necessarily risk this because we heard that Seattle's not really interested, but maybe at the right price, the Seahawks might be interested in Baker Mayfield. Well, I mean, look, I, I think what's, what Carolina's doing is doing what you should do, is you say, who's our competition in this, right? And Carolina's general manager, Scott Federer, he was in the Seattle organization yep. for how many years? Okay, yep. so he, if anybody knows John Schneider and Pete Carroll, he does. And I'm sure he has sources that he talks to in that building. And, you know, I think he can determine really accurately what's their level of interest. And, look, their owner is a guy who's is is revered, not not just l- respected, revered in the hedge fund industry. And he makes a living negotiating. I mean, that's what he's done, and that's what his expertise are. So I'm sure he's sitting there saying, why should I pay more when I don't have to pay more? I mean, all of us, when we talk about rich people, we think that just just give the money. The reason they became rich is because they protect every dollar. You know, yeah. They understand the value of the dollar, and they understand winning the negotiation. I think it's sometimes it's more about winning the negotiation than the money when you reach this level of, of wealth. So I, I think it's all about information, right? I, I think the most important thing when you're dealing in a negotiation or us on a betting network is to have the best information. You know, I was in Key West and last week and I, and I, after I, after, but when I started the pod last week, I just came back from the Harry Truman Little White House Museum mm-hmm. there. And, and it reminded me of a great story I wrote about in the book coming up uh, about Jimmy the Greek, right? So Jimmy the Greek is this young kid in Steubenville, Ohio. And he's got, you know, and, he want, and he's a gambler. I mean, the whole city of Steubenville is gambling. There's, there's all sorts of places all over the town that they have bookies in it, right? And it's it's kind of accepted. And in fact, Jimmy the Greek once said, I didn't know gambling was illegal until I got to about 26 years old because that's the <laughs> world he lived in. So he's a young kid and he grows a mustache. And his sister says to him, that, that's ridiculous. You look ridiculous and no women like men with mustaches. And so he kind of ponders that for a while and he thinks about it and he sees Thomas Dewey running for president against Harry Truman. And Dewey has a mustache. So he kind of thinks, okay, I can bet this and see what I can come up with. And so he takes two women, hires them, puts them in the Steubenville grocery store, and says, ask every woman who comes in this grocery store if they like men with mustaches. Overwhelmingly, the verdict comes back. They don't like men with mustaches. So the Greek takes his 10 grand that he has saved up, and he bets it on 17 to 1 on Harry Truman. And he wins, and he becomes Jimmy the Greek. He becomes a legend. (laughs) Because he had information that he used in the right way. And that's the moral of the story is, I have this information. What am I going to do with it? And I think that's what Carolina is stuck with right there. They have the information. And Josina's mm-hmm. not doing anything. I don't, I'm not saying her report's false. I'm just saying that I think it's more of about trying to motivate Carolina to get the deal done than it is actually anything else. Yeah. No, and, and we see that happen often in the NFL and in and sports in general, that something from the organization gets leaked out to a reporter to kind of influence what the other team may or may not end up doing there. And that's part of trying to expedite these processes and hoping to get things done. Let's say though, if Baker were to go to Seattle, how do you think he would fit in that offense there with what the Seahawks got going on? Well, I mean, look, you know, what Seattle has done is they went to the Rams offense, partly because that's what Wilson wanted to run. Mm -hmm. And so what is the Rams offense? What is the Rams offense with Goff? And it became different with Stafford a little bit, but not much. The Rams offense is play action pass, bootlegs, nakeds, you know, uh, move the quarterback, run the outside zone. I mean, that's kind of what Seattle wanted to be last year. So it does fit. He would fit perfectly into what they're doing. 
You know, it's to say it's no different than the Kevin Stefanski offense, which is a derivative of Gary Kubiak, which is a derivative of Kyle, Mike Shanahan, which is a derivative of you know all that yeah. kind of ties together. That's why when you study football and you're preparing to play a team, you have to study the origins of the defense, how it became ineffective, how it adapted over time, offensively. Where did this start? What are the technique? What are they doing? This isn't about watching the last three games. This is about studying the complexities and how this was formed. And that allows you to either defend it better or attack it better. And I think when you're a quarterback like Baker, this gives you an opportunity. Now, what would he be like in, in Carolina? I think Carolina would be smart to handle the same thing. I mean, Carolina's going to be a spread team out of mm-hmm. 11, whether it's in shotgun or out of, out of uh, under center. And they're got, they've got a great outside zone runner in McCaffrey. I think it would fit there too. Yeah, it'd be interesting. I think both teams would be competitive adding Baker Mayfield to their roster there. When that happens, we don't know, but you believe it should likely go to the Carolina Panthers who maybe they get a little I, bit more I, interesting in that NFC South. I think the Panthers have to give a kind of a, 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 a I mean, I think Baker has to make a decision, right? So Baker's yeah. sitting there and he knows he's got this guaranteed money and and he knows that Cleveland's going to pay some of it. I think Cleveland's going to play some of it, not all of it. I, I think there's probably a little bit of a, a the, the disconnect is probably, let's say it's $4 million, $4 million right? Mm-hmm. You know, Carolina wants to pay X, Cleveland wants to pay Y, and that number doesn't quite get to $18 million. And so there's the debate. To me, if I were Baker's agent, I would say, Baker, look, we have an opportunity. This $3 million, we can get it in incentives. Yeah. Let's take let's take this deal. It's easy for me to say because it's not my money. <laughs> yeah, <I was> gonna... <laughs> Again with the money, right? Yeah. And so I would I would I have to position myself to get in a better pos- place next year. Mm-hmm. You know, and where can I do that? Where can that fit? Because if I take th- if I take this money and put it in incentives, and I go to Carolina and I get them to the playoffs, they're probably going to resign me at a at a pretty good deal. I'll make that money up. I mean, if you're Carolina, you say, okay, you take this deal, we'll put it in incentives. If you go to the playoffs, we'll give it back to you. Or, you know, or we will do, you know, we will obviously, you know, have to franchise you and you'll make even more money. So there's a way to get it done. It just takes some some doing to do it. And I think ultimately that's why I, I get the sense it will happen. Yeah. I'm sure Baker Mayfield's camp though is thinking about, hey, well, you also played with a messed up shoulder last year. What's to say that you might get hurt again this year to where maybe you never see that money? So it's the things that you have to kind of weigh. It's the the injury concern, but also the potential to set yourself up to maybe get a better contract later on down the line like you outlined. Um, we saw one guy who decided to walk away from the game earlier this week. One Rob Gronkowski, your guy out there. Played many years for the New England Patriots. The last couple of years played for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Four-time Super Bowl champion. Four-time All-Pro. Member of the NFL's 100th anniversary all-time team. Most receiving touchdowns in a season by a tight end. Most career TDs in the postseason by a tight end. Most 100-yard games by a tight end in NFL history. Your reaction to Gronk retiring once again from the game. And also, do you think we'll ever see him again on a football field? I don't think he's coming back. I think he knows that it's his body is kind of at the point where uh, it's hard for him to get ready to, for the rigors of 17 games and playing at the highest level. And I, I think the way he has approached it is kind of – one thing about Gronk, there's Gronk – Gronk's almost like a TV character, right? There's mm-hmm. Gronk, the persona that we see, and then there's Gronk, the really smart guy behind the scenes, right? And I, I think the smart Gronk is saying, look, I, my body's not there. I didn't train to get ready to play. It's just not going to be the case. You know, maybe, in, you know, I mean, he has to make the decision to come back. If they put him on reserve retired, which they will, well, they don't own his rights. Okay, so he's mm-hmm. a free agent. So it's kind of easy for him to walk away because then anybody could bring him back. And so, you know, maybe somebody gets desperate in the middle of the season and offers him a boatload of money and he takes the money. But for the most part, I, I believe that I think he's done. I don't see him coming back. I don't think he wants to play. There's not that passion to play the game the way it is. Once you've quit once and you come back, do you come? Yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's hard. You know, how many, how many times can you unretire? Yeah, no, and that's a, that's a good question because I know a lot of players say the minute you start to think about retirement, you're officially retired. Uh, Gronk was able to come back and still play at a productive level here 
It's interesting, though, from a Tampa Bay Buccaneers and a Tom Brady perspective because the two guys that he trusted the most, I would venture to guess, Chris Godwin and Rob Gronkowski, he's not going to have to start the year most yeah. likely. Now, Godwin, we'll see when he's able to return probably midway through the season after tearing his ACL late in the regular season last year, but maybe a new challenge here for Tom Brady as he returns for his 23rd season. Uh, real yeah. quick on Gronk, though, is he uh, the best tight end ever? And also, do you have him? in your top 100 list. I don't want you to give away the whole thing because he had the book coming out later on, but just a little bit of snippet. Does Gronk make the cut? Oh, Gronk makes the cut for sure. I think the tight end position is kind of interesting. I I saw that Christopher Russo was taking a wrath of crap on on Twitter by a lot of people because he had tight end combination, quarterback tight end combination, and he put Ron Kramer and Bart Starr. I don't think people realize how good of a player Ron Kramer was. Ron Kramer's not in the Hall of Fame. He's on the All-Decade team on the 75th or the All-50th anniversary team. Mm -hmm. He was that good. He was underutilized. I mean, first of all, when Kramer was on the Packers, they they were running the sweep. There wasn't a passing game. And so he controlled the edge of the line. He was a dominating. I mean, he was Gronk before Gronk. If you go back and watch Kramer, he was Gronk. But the problem was he wasn't playing in a system that really was conducive. And then he was going through some personal issues off the field with his wife, and they were kind of getting divorced. He's from Michigan. And Mm so, you know, the Packers traded him back to to Detroit so he could be and repair his family life. I mean, here's a guy that, you know, played, was an all, played basketball at Michigan. I mean, everything at Michigan, you go to there and talk to anybody about Ron Kramer. He was an elite player just at the time that he played, it wasn't elite. But had he played, you know, further into the 70s, he would have been probably one of the most de- devastating tight ends out there because he was big, he was fast, he was really athletic. I mean, this is a guy that that played that, that tried out for the Harlem Globetrotters. That's how yeah. athletic he was. Yeah, it seems like all great tight ends have a little bit of a basketball background to them as well. Um, before we wrap up the segment, though, Michael, some sad news, though, in the National Football mm-hmm. League this week here. Um, we learned that Tony Saragusa passed away at the age of 55. He played for the Colts. And the Ravens, and also, I believe it was on the same day, we learned that the 26-year-old Jalen Ferguson, the outside linebacker for the Baltimore Ravens, passing away as well. And it's just kind of a somber um, Mm. reminder of how quickly life can be and just to kind of always cherish the days that we have and and make sure that the people we love, we let them know that we love them, you know, from time to time because uh, it can go just like that. I mean, Goose is such a character, right? You know, he's an undrafted kid that the Colts signed as a free agent out of Pitt. Even though he played for Mike Gottfried at Pitt, he was a dominating player at Pitt. Mm-hmm. But he wasn't a, a quick foot player. I mean, you couldn't run the ball at, at, at Sarah Goose at Pitt. Yeah. And the Colts get him as a free agent. Then he becomes a free agent. And the Baltimore, I was in Philly. We were trying to sign him. And the Ravens and Ozzie got him instead of us. But... I mean, he could control the point of attack. His father died at 48 of heart disease. And, and Saragusa told his wife that, you know, look, I, I, I'm going to enjoy every single day. And if I go, make sure you play a lot of Sinatra at the funeral. I mean, he kind of had mm-hmm. that, that approach, you know. And some people that know they have heart problems within their family are very more conducive to, uh, to, to monitoring their medical condition. And Goose kind of just let it all go. And, and it's sad because he was a character... I love the idea of what he brought to the game, having that sideline reporter, but having more of an in-depth look at the sideline, mm-hmm. not just tell us about the injuries. You know, I, I thought that was really a, a kind of a revolutionary thing Fox did with them, and it was great. Uh, but I think ultimately, look, he started in the Sopranos. He's truly a character. There's no doubt. It's unfortunate. He will be missed. Yeah, he'll definitely be missed. Gone at the age of 55. Also, Jalen Ferguson. Um, yeah, thoughts that, to his that family. One's, that one's hard. Well. That one's hard. Yeah, that's very. I difficult. mean, you know, you know, Femi. I mean, I don't know what happened in the Jalen Ferguson case. It's mm-hmm. tragic. The kid. You remember the kid from Purdue, the heavy set kid who kind of was homeless and he kind of got adopted. Caleb mm-hmm. Swenninger, I believe his name Caleb was. Caleb Swanigan. Yep. Swanigan, right? So, I mean, and then he's. I mean, they they said he died of natural causes. He's 25. Who dies of 25 of natural causes? Yeah. It's just so it's, tragic, it's isn't tragic. it? Yeah, it's like 26 years old. I mean, like I'm 30. I'm about to turn 32 in about a couple of weeks here, and I'm thinking 26. That's somebody that could be like a younger brother or a peer, and to see somebody pass away at that age. And it was the same kind of feeling too with Dwayne Haskins when he passed away. I believe he yeah. was 24, 25 years old. These kids, we forget that even though we see them in the professional ranks, they're so young, just even scratching the surface on their adult lives. There for him to pass away at 26. Once again, thoughts and. Prayers to the family, the friends, everyone who knew Tony Saragusa and Jalen Ferguson. Really a tough week 
in the NFL, but um, we want to keep our thoughts with them here on the GM Shuffle. On the other side, we'll come back with more with Michael Lombardi. All right, anytime you're on the golf course, you always hear the phrase, hit it long and hit it straight. Well, as somebody who's a novice to the game of golf, a new person, I wanted to make sure I had the best equipment possible. So, as a novice golfer, I went and hit up our friends over at PXG because they have an all-new driver called the Black Ops. I mean, my man Chris over in Henderson has hooked me up with a phenomenal driver that's built to my game. My new game that doesn't really do much of anything on the course, but it has what I need in terms of the club head speed and the kind of grip that I need to go out there and be the best to my ability. I mean, this is music to ears to any golfer, whether you're a novice like myself or if you've been playing the game for decades. The PXG Black Ops driver is a breakthrough in driver technology. It's a complete and total victory in golf club engineering unlike anything you've ever seen before. Black Op drivers are adjustable to deliver a combined MOI of 10,000 plus for unreal forgiveness. That's just ridiculously high. So what you got to do Go check out the PXG Black Ops Driver. You'll be as impressed with it as I am. Learn more and get free shipping on all equipment at pxg.com slash gmshuffle and use code gmshuffle at checkout. That's pxg.com slash gmshuffle, code gmshuffle for free shipping on all equipment, pxg.com slash gmshuffle, code gmshuffle. All right, Michael, you know we love the off-season chatter, and it's a time yeah. to kind of reset the deck of what we think about football heading into the 2022 season. And the folks over at Pro Football Focus put together a list of best offensive play callers. Now, here are the six guys that they highlighted, the top six offensive play callers in the National Football League. Number one, Andy Reid of the Kansas City Chiefs. Kellen Moore at number two, the offensive coordinator of the Dallas Cowboys. Number three, the offensive coordinator of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Byron Lefwich. And then at four, you have Kyle Shanahan. Five, Sean McVay. Six, Matt LaFleur. Your thoughts on this top six of play callers in the NFL? You know, like I, like I always think with pro football folks, where do they come up with it? Like, what's their criteria? Okay. Like, how, what is, like, what are they doing? How are they, they're looking at stats. Are they looking at the calls? Are they looking at the timely calls? Are they looking at the calls under pressure when the game is on the line? I mean, to me, it's kind of like, I, I don't know what their criteria are. Is Kellen Moore that great of a play caller? Does he... Does he do anything? Can he get the ball to Amari Cooper? No, of course he couldn't do that when the game was on the line. You know that as much as anybody. Yeah. You know, I mean, Byron Leftwich, great. Okay, put him on the list. Who do you think's calling the plays there? You think Brady's not orchestrating everything at the line of scrimmage? I mean, you don't think Brady goes to the line of scrimmage with a package and say, okay, we're going to do this, this, here, here we go, you know, and then we'll get us into this and get us into that. I, I, I mean, I think to me it's like, Okay, how are we evaluating these guys? I mean, Andy Reid, it's pretty easy. He's a great play designer. There's no doubt. And he has a great mm -hmm. rhythm to his play callings. And he, and he puts the points in the end zone, which is ultimately what. And he makes the quarterback better, which I think is critical. So to me, I, I just never know what their criteria is. It's so random. I mean, put Matt, I mean, Matt LaFleur was an offensive coordinator and a play caller in, in Tennessee, and, and, and they couldn't do anything. I think they were 29th or 30th in offense. You know, and the next year, Arthur Smith comes in, and Arthur Smith ends up with the same players, ends up having a great season. So tell me he's a great play caller. Sean McVay's one of the best play callers in the league, and yet he's not even in the top 10 coach head coaches. Like, I don't <laughs> get this. Like, I don't understand. Like, where's the rhyme and the reason to this? Like, where does that come from? Like, I, I watch Dallas. You watch Dallas. Yeah. No, I, I, I mean, I, I, they don't adjust at all during the game. It's either is or it isn't. Yeah. You yeah. know, and, and, and there's no real, to me, I don't sit there and say, wow, that Kellen Moore, that's, yeah, does he have some good concepts in place? Mm. It's the difference between calling plays and being a play caller. There's a huge difference between that because when you're a true play caller, you're a chess master. You're setting things up. You're trying to handle things. You're saving things for the fourth quarter when the game becomes independent, right? Mm. Like this is what we don't talk enough about. The first quarter is about adjustments, the, the uh, finding out, collecting data. The second and the third quarter are about adjustments. The fourth quarter is a standalone game. Who's calling plays in the fourth quarter being able to win? Did, did Kellen have an answer for San Francisco's defense in the playoff game? Of course he didn't. No. I, I think that's an interesting point that you brought up. The difference between calling plays and being a play caller, because I agree with you about Kellen Moore. Um, I'm high on Kellen Moore. I don't think he's the second best play caller in the NFL. He does some creative stuff. I don't know if it's some Chris Peterson influence there from the days over at Boise State, but the Cowboys do some creative stuff from time to time, but it never feels like 
they sequence things together from, okay, set this up from the first quarter to then maybe take advantage of this in the third or fourth quarter. Also, the point that I think you brought home of not being able to get the playmakers the football, it was a thing that I thought stood out drastically. And it's a weakness of Kellen Moore's, I would say, here, as he's still a young play caller. He's only been calling plays for about three years or so, which is still pretty young there for a play caller. But oftentimes for the Cowboys, the opposing team is able to take away the primary target to where they only get the ball to the secondary option, which you're playing right into the defense's hands. So I can't say that you're the second best play caller if you're doing that. Whereas Sean McVay, who's at number five, everybody on planet Earth knows they're trying to get the football to Cooper Cup and they still get the football to yeah. Cooper Cup. Like that to and he has me 81 is the difference third down, and he converts it 81 times on third yeah. down. So uh, the guy who writes this list, has he ever been on a draft meeting? Has he ever been in a game plan meeting for the entire week? Has he ever sat there and listened to how are we going to call the game? What do we want to do? How do we want to win the game? Like, what do we have to do to win the game? Like, that's all part of play calling. You're playing complimentary football. This isn't just Madden in your basement, right? Like, we're just not going to just start. How are we going to play the game to win the game? That's part of play calling. Yeah. Right? That's part of play calling. How are we going to tire the defense out? What are we going to call when it's critical? What are we not going to call? Who are we going to stay away from? You know, I mean, that's the, like... Unless you've been privy to those meetings, and I don't think this guy's been privy to them, it's pretty obvious when he comes up with these lists. He's just basically looking at numbers. He's just in his basement, like looking at things, you know. And and so, look, he's entitled to an opinion. There's no doubt. But where's the where mm-hmm. is the evidence that he's ever studied this? Like, does he know some of the great play callers that have ever happened in this league and how they went about it from Bill Walsh to, I'll tell you, Bob Schnelker was one of the best play callers. He was in Minnesota for years, never even had a headset on. You know, it, it, like, do you understand how a guy sets things up? What he wants to do? Like, you just, you're just, just giving me guys who call. Like, we're not playing Madden in the basement. Well, let's get to your list here, Michael, of who you think the best offensive play callers are. And there's some crossover, but there's some not so crossover here. So you, I believe you gave it five of the best play callers, starting with number one, Andy Reid. So that we have an agreement there. Number two, you have Josh McDaniels, who was the play caller, the offensive coordinator at New England, I mean, now there, taking there, over as the head coach here in Las no Vegas. One, there, there's no one in the league that would not, whether you like Josh McDaniels or not, there's no one in the league that doesn't think he's one of the best play callers in all of football. Mm-hmm. He sets it up. He understands how to run the ball, how to win the game. He understands how to throw the ball to win the game. He understands how to get the ball to his best players. You know, I, I mean, takes a rookie quarterback and, and takes him to the playoffs, understands all that. Like, how is he not in the top five? Like, I, I mean, well, you say, well, he had Brady. And if you say Leftwich, Leftwich call, you know, Brady calls the plays at the line of scrimmage. Yeah. Well, when Brady was with, with Josh, that was a little whole different story now, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and so he, there was some symmetry. I mean, give Brady, give Brady a question. Who would be now? Brady's not going to say it, but I have a feeling I know the answer to that. You know, and so that that's why. I mean, look, I think Sean McVay, what you said, is perfect. He, you know, he gets the ball to his best players. I think Kyle can get the ball to his best player, and I think Frank Wright is r- really, really good because Frank Wright's calling plays to try to win the game. Yeah, no, that's that's interesting, Frank Reich. A part of that Andy Reid kind of tree there. He was with Andy Reid um, back in, or sorry, not with Andy. Yeah, he was he was a part of that tree. He was with Doug Peterson, I should say, in Philadelphia. Right. But that Doug Peterson was with Andy Reid, so they're kind of all under that same tree. Andy Reid being the most talented play caller I think we have in the league. Kyle Shanahan at four to to me is really interesting because Kyle Shanahan, what he's been able to do with quarterbacks who are not on that elite tier and to consistently have a really productive offense speaks. It bodes well for what Kyle Shanahan is. And I think from the head coaching perspective, oftentimes we rank Shanahan high as a head coach because of what he is as a play caller. Would you agree with that? I, I would. And, and I think we overrank Andy Reid, too, as a play caller. Andy Reid's a great play designer. Mm-hmm. And Andy Reid's got great, great ability to score and with uniqueness in the red zone. But I do think at the end of crucial games, when the game is on the line, I think Andy Reid is not a great play caller. He gets away with it. I mean, Chad Henney scrambling to get that first <laughs> I remember down. remember that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> two years ago. I think he takes a lot of risk in game management and complimentary football. He gets away with it. And in Philly, at times, he didn't. He was mm-hmm. under the gun a little bit. Oh, yeah. He, he throws the ball when he shouldn't throw the ball in game management situations. So for me, I, you know, I, I think he's a tremendous play designer. I think he's really creative. And I do see him 
trying to set things up. However, that being said, there are times where, like last year, when they took away that deep throw and he couldn't really get it, they struggled. And one thing everybody knows about Andy is he gets bored running the football. So, you know, he'll just start throwing it. And if you can get him into that whole thing, especially if you can get some pressure on his quarterback, you got a chance. But I think, you know, as a designer, there's not. But at the end of the day, it's not about yards. It's about winning and points. That's what it is. It's about setting it up, making the right call at the right time. Yeah. Andy Reid, he was under flack in Philadelphia, like you mentioned there, for sometimes abandoning the run during those years when he had Donovan McNabb at quarterback. Just once again, to recap your top five list of play callers, Mike, we have Andy Reid, number one, Josh McDaniels, number two, Sean McVay, three, Kyle Shanahan, four, and Frank Reich, number five. Let's get to the... Uh, and uh, let me say this uh, on the way. I wouldn't, okay. put, I wouldn't put Matt LaFleur in the top 10. Like, I, I don't even... Like, like that's, do you realize some of the stuff that they run, that there's only one human being that could do it on the planet? Yeah. No, and, and Rodgers is as talented as anybody. Out there He's the only the human that can do it. We're going to put it to the test. Now, he still has Rodgers, the two-time reigning defending MVP, but without Devontae Adams there, we'll see if they can spread the football around and do those types of things. But, yeah, I mean, I remember the conversation around Matt LaFleur when he first got hired. Everybody looked at what he did in Tennessee and said, this offense wasn't that good. Why did they hire this LaFleur guy? Now, it's worked out with Aaron Rodgers. He's uh, had three straight 13-win seasons. But, um, yeah, we're, we're about to find out more and more about Matt LaFleur. And whenever Rodgers eventually retires, I think we'll get our actual answer there. Uh, I want to get to the defensive play callers. This is from PFF as well. They're top five or top six defensive play callers. Number one, they have Bill's defensive coordinator, Leslie Frazier. Number two, Dan Quinn of the Dallas Cowboys. Number three, Dennis Allen of the New Orleans Saints. Four, Raheem Morris of the Rams. And then five, Josh Boyer of the Miami Dolphins. And then six, Joe Barry of the Green Bay Packers. Your thoughts? Well, I mean, look, I, I, I don't know, you know, how Don Martindale's not on the list, I have no idea, right? Like, mm-hmm. he's one of the best play callers. But let's put things in perspective here. A defensive play caller doesn't get enough credit, right? He doesn't get enough attention. The offensive play caller always gets it. The defensive play caller's job is to be able to eliminate big plays, but his bigger job is to figure out how to attack the protection schemes and be able to, get, when he does pressure the quarterback, get home free and make the game and create, not necessarily always just create turnovers, but kind of disrupt the game and make the other team play left-handed. I think that's so critical, right? Like, Belichick's not even on this list. Like, he's not even on the list. Well, he's not a defense coordinator. Well, they set the game up to where he is. You know, yeah. Martindale's not on the list. Like, like to me, Josh Boyer's on the list. They're one and seven. When Josh Boyer was calling the defenses, they were blitzing like crazy. And then eventually Flores took over. And then Flores kind of, they started to play more zone. They started to kind of take away some of the things they were doing. And you could see it on the sidelines. Like, like is that really what's happening? I mean, you want to give Boyer credit for that? I thought Green Bay's defense was, wasn't very good. You know, I mean, yeah, Rashad Douglas had some plays. But, I mean, for the most part, you know, I, I didn't see it. How about where's Brendan Staley on this list? I mean, PFF loves Brendan Staley. I think he's the greatest coach in the history of football, right? <laughs> I mean, where is he on this list? I don't, you know, I don't. But to me, I think they did get better with Raheem Morris. But to me, it's about timely pressures. It's about mm-hmm. what Dennis Allen did going into Tampa Bay, making the Bucks play left-handed and shutting them out when you really were and winning the game nine to nothing. To me, that's the essence of the game. Yeah, and, and so let's look at your list here, Michael. Your top five defensive play callers in the NFL: Wink Martindale, you have number one, the Giants' defensive coordinator. Dennis Allen you have at number two, the now head coach of the New Orleans Saints. Vic Fangio, who's unemployed right now at number three, was previously the head coach of the Denver Broncos. Then Todd Bowles, the now new head coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. There, He'll still be calling the defensive plays there down in Tampa. Then Raheem Morris, the defensive coordinator of the L.A. Rams. Are you surprised that Fangio is not in the league right now? I mean, he might have wanted to take no. a year off to kind of clear his head, but I thought he was that, going to be the hottest the only- name. That's the only reason he's not in the league. He wanted to take a year off. I mean, what Vic's able to do. So, first of all, I I don't agree with having one through five. When I went to Cal to study a statistical breakdown, the the professor at Cal said, look, you've got to – everybody's in clusters. So, when I rank rank the coordinators every week in terms of the game. So, when I'm doing my matchup board on my Excel spreadsheets every week, you know – 
Tampa is playing Washington. So, you know, I have Washington staff broken down in clusters. You know, the there's six there's there's the first six clusters are two point five. The second six clusters are five. They're worth five points. The third cluster is, is worth seven and a half. The fourth is worth ten. You follow me? Yeah. So because it's too hard to say Martindale is better than than Allen when they're all really good. So yeah. to me, the, I, I gave them to Steven in an order, but you can m- move the order around. You can make an argument that Todd Bowles is the best play caller. I wouldn't disagree with you. You could argue Raheem Morris is. I wouldn't disagree with you. You know, you could say Allen is. I wouldn't disagree. You could say Martindale's five. I wouldn't disagree. Like there's to me, it, it's clusters. So with that being said, that's how I came with with what I tried to do. Secondly, I think when you're a great defensive coordinator, you do three things really well. You disguise your coverages. You have a way to where your players, the the quarterback has a hard time figuring out what's going on. This is where Fangio excels. His ability to coach the nuances of the game, to be able to disguise his coverages so the quarterback is confused when the ball hits his hand. I think he's really good. The second is you've got to be able to call timely pressures and attack the protections. Like you're the defensive coordinator. You're spending most of your time understanding how pass protections originate and how to attack them, and how to get home free. To blitz and not get a guy home free is bad. Mm-hmm. Like, you got to have, you got to get a guy free. you got to get a clear rusher. Or you've got to get a matchup where my big guy's trying to block your little guy. My little guy's trying to block your big guy, right? you got to get that matchup. And I think that's it. And, and secondly, you've got to be able to eliminate big plays. You can't just be, okay, I want to create turnovers, and yet I give up big plays. You know, that, that hit or miss type mentality, what I call battleship football. I thought Dan Quinn did a nice job of adjusting his scheme during mm-hmm. when he went to Dallas. I'm not sure he did a great job of calling it because I think if you look at them at the end of the year, when people started to figure him out, it became a little complicated. It became harder for that. So I, I think Dan Quinn is moving in the right direction, especially as he gets away from the Pete Carroll scheme that he was running in Atlanta. When Raheem Morris took over for him, that, that defense, even though they weren't very talented, got better. So I think those are the three areas you've got to look at a defense coordinator. And again, how well do they coach in the red zone? Like how good are they in situational football? Do they stop teams on third down? Do they take away their best player? Do they keep opponents out of the end zone? Because they're so good in red zone defense. I think that's the critical factor. Yeah, I think the one last point on Vic Fangio, the fact that a lot of people have tried to duplicate what he's been doing across the league as this new wave of stopping these more modern offenses, I think is a tip in the cap to Vic Fangio. Everywhere he's been, he's had a top-tier level defense, whether it's San Francisco, in Chicago, in Denver, even though from a team standpoint, they didn't have the success. The defense was at least really good there. So uh, I think Fangio, whenever he decides to come back to football, if he ever decides to come back to football, will be a hot name for any of these organizations. On the other side, Michael, we're going to take a quick break, but we got to talk about the Washington Commander. The NBA playoffs are heating up, and so is the action at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. With same-game parlays, live betting, odds boosts, and so much more, don't miss out as the NBA postseason winds down. I mean, the second round of the playoffs have been absolutely phenomenal, and if you really like a team, you can bet on them for the futures markets, maybe some conference finals MVPs as the conference finals approach, or how about NBA finals MVP? And if you're new to DraftKings, you got to check this out. New customers bet five bucks to get 150 in bonus bets instantly download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code shuffle that's code shuffle for new customers to get 150 in bonus bets when you bet just five bucks only on DraftKings the crown is yours gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia visit www.1800gambler.net in New York call 8778-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY-467-369 in Connecticut help is available for problem gambling call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction void in Ontario bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance, see dkng.com slash bball for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. All right, Michael, um, just to recap what we saw from the head coaching list there, I mean, uh, Pro Football Focus, which they have their own uh, methodologies. I'm not trying to, you know, dump on whatever they're doing over there. They go, those guys work hard. They have their own methodologies and hypothesis and what, what have you, but 
My Dallas Cowboys. I'm a fan of the Cowboys. We got two top two coordinators, Michael, Dan Quinn, and Kellen Moore. We got a top 10 head coach and Mike McCarthy. I'm trying to figure out why the hell my team keeps underachieving. Yeah, well, I mean, because winning doesn't matter. Look, I, I agree. I love Chris Collinsworth. He owns Pro Football Focus. You can. It's good to have disagreement, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. I don't and those take guys it work hard and they do some good stuff. Yeah, as well. but yeah. I, I think every time they reveal these polls, they show how little they know about football. That's all I'm saying. Is like, uh, and I'm not saying because I worked in the league, I know football. But I mean, like, I've studied this. Like, you got to go back and understand the methodology. If I showed that list to somebody in the league that knows, they would they would laugh at that. You know, first of all, you know, Leslie Frazier, number one. I mean, look, they're playing from in front. McDermott runs the defense. LaFraser calls it. Like, nobody goes to Buffalo and thinks, oh, my God, what a headache it's going to be to play their defense. They're good good players. The headache's Josh Allen. So, to me, it never – see, this all this analytical crap never ties to winning. It always stands independently outside as if winning doesn't matter. Shot selection in the NBA. Oh, that's great. Guy can't make the shot, but his shot selection's great. Like, it's got to come back towards winning. It's got to funnel back. How are we going to win the game? Yeah, win is the name of the game here. Um, talk about headaches. I tell you who's been a headache for the NFL. It's this Washington Commanders organization. I'm sure you've been keeping tabs on what's going on the latest this week. The House Oversight Committee, uh, Roger Goodell had to testify in front of them for the whole Washington Commander's toxic workplace investigation that's been going on there. Daniel Snyder, the owner, didn't show up for the, uh, he did not testify, but now he's being subpoenaed um, by one of the um, congresswomen or congressmen out there in Washington, D.C. I mean, just what do you make of all this Washington Commander's where every month it feels like something comes out about this organization to where I sit back to myself and I think, why is Daniel Snyder still an owner in the NFL? Because to me, he seems more like a liability than an asset. Well, I mean, look, you know, they asked the con- they asked the commissioner uh, if he could, you know, if he could t- take the franchise away from Snyder, and you need he can't. He he said, I don't mm. have the authority to do that, and he's completely right. He doesn't have the authority to do it, and he needs twenty four votes. And there's no way he would call a vote unless he knew two things unless he knew he had all 24 votes in his back pocket Mm -hmm. or 25 or 26. And he also knew that he could win the litigation because one of the things that has made Snyder a very formidable opponent to everybody who deals with him is his legal, his his litigation. He comes hard and he comes heavy. He's uncle junior. He ain't coming light. (laughs) And so you better, you better lawyer up when you go against him. I think Howard Milstein, the owner, uh, the guy who started out as, as, as part of the, uh, as part of the Washington group that ended up buying the team, found out. You know, but but here's the thing, though, Femi. I mean, they've won, in his 22 years, they've won 156 games and lost 212. I mean, nice. he's only been to the playoffs very few. He's had eight playoff games, and he's only won two. I mean, you can't run a franchise into the ground more than this guy has done. I mean, it's pretty clear. Yeah. And he doesn't understand how to be an owner. And he has never understood how to be an owner. And I think what they've done in Washington is all they've done is rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic. They hire a general, they hire Rivera, who's never, Rivera in his 11 seasons has only had three winning seasons. you believe that? Just yeah, three. It's Yet crazy. Rivera, we, we treat as if he's the, one of the great coaches of all time. You know, he never could, and he's a wonderful man. I'm not, again, this is just looking at it. And so, and then they bring Jason Wright in to be the president. I'm sure Jason's really good, but you're never going to be able to change the culture in Washington until you get rid of the guy who's created the culture. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, 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 you can't do that. Like, it's still there. It's still in the building, you know? The fact that Del Rio went off and, and, and went rogue and started talking about crap he had no business talking about. He's yeah. a defense coordinator of the Washington football team. You know, talk about the players. Don't bring, don't bring your political uh, favor into this. The fact that he got away with that is an indication they still haven't changed the culture. Because if they had a culture, they would have systems and protocols in place that would have stopped him from doing that. So it's never going to change. It's never going to change. And I wrote about it today for VEASAN. And to me, you know, he's so bad. The other owners are probably sitting there, unless he completely embarrasses them, which he's done. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a gimme putt every time they play. He's never going to win. 22 years of bad, you know, and it's never going to change. Which, so to me, and then this year, I don't think it's changing this year. It's interesting to me because – 
if I was one of these other 31 owners, I'd be like, what are we doing with this guy in our fraternity here? Because we know the 32 owners, it's an exclusive club. You can't just be rich to get into it. You also got to get approved by the people who are already in the club. This guy and the NFL, the whole mantra is protect the shield. He's doing the opposite. He's embarrassing the shield, even though it's just the Washington Commanders organization that's getting a lot of the flack. But you have Roger Goodell up there just taking daggers as he's testifying there in front of the House Oversight Committee. At some point, at least 24, 25, 26, however many of these guys, it's 24 that's needed to get Snyder out of there. But at some point, you got to think to ourselves, why are we letting this guy bring us down like this? Like to me, like those discussions got to start happening. Well, because I don't think he feels like if, if Snyder takes him to court, if he tries to take the team away, Snyder's going to win. And then it's going to be chaos on his rules. Yeah. I mean, th- and there, there's all no, loose. <laughs> and all hell breaks loose. So there's no way Goodell, you, one thing I learned being in the league, whenever you go to a league meeting, the, the commissioner never calls for a vote. I mean, unless they have the votes, mm-hmm. like he's not going to get embarrassed and call for a vote and can't get the vote. Like they voted before. You ever see the scene in, in, in the movie Lyndon Johnson where Lyndon Johnson's counting votes? I mean, that's what it's like. He's sitting in the room. He's got votes. He's got, he's got a board up there. He's counting all his votes. He sees what he has and he goes. And he never calls a vote until he knows he has it. Yeah. I mean, that's just politics. And this is what we're dealing with. And to me, you know, this distraction is what I try to... Like, that Washington's not good enough to overcome anything, let alone nope. this distraction. And what I find really interesting is the fact that when you compare Heineke to Wentz, it's really close. It's really close. You know, it's not like they were. there's a complete separation between one player to the next. Like, they made maybe, and you could argue they made no slight improvement. But, but to me, that's the big question. The line is set at eight, Femi. Mm-hmm. I, I, you can find five wins on their schedule. Now, to find four more, they're there, but they're going to be close games. Do you trust Rivera in a close game? Do you trust Jack Del Rio to be a really good play caller in a close game? Do you trust Scott Turner to call it in a close game? Do you? Nope. <laughs> I, I don't either. I don't trust him. I, I mean, the year Rivera went 15-1. and one. He challenged it 17 times. He had 17 challenges that year. He won 10 of them. I mean, he was very good at that. But if those challenges don't come through like he did, would they have been 15-1? and one? Yeah. No, that's the, the fact he's been a multiple-time NFL coach of the year because of the peaks and valleys. And it's been a lot of valleys for Ron Rivera, like you uh, mentioned three there. Three and eight three, years. Three I mean, and eight in terms I mean, of winning records. I mean, Matt Rule's trying to clean up some of the stuff down in Carolina, you know, the culture and all that. I mean, Cam Newton deserves, a, a, you know, a lot of what he, the success he That's had. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> I mean, I'm not trying to say, but Ron doesn't look like, like, tell me what move they made this. I mean, they d- didn't get rid of one coach. I mean, they got some, uh, the coordinators I'm talking about. Like, mm-hmm. how are they going to get better if they don't make changes? Interesting question. Once proud organization, seems like it's going in the toilet in our nation's capital. Michael, let's take one final break. And on the other side, I want to throw another story at you that might get the people going. All right, Michael, final segment. Uh, Wanted to make sure you caught this note here. Pittsburgh Steelers wide receiver Chase Claypool, uh, I believe going into his fourth year in the National Football League, said earlier this week that he believes that he is a top three wide receiver in the NFL. We're going to do blue chips and red chips coming up starting next week, actually. Wide receivers, we'll get to that later this summer. What do you think of Claypool? I like the confidence, but I'm not sure if I can yeah. go that far with him. And by me not sure, I mean I can't. <laughs> well, I, I can't either. But, I mean, in fairness to the kid, look, he hasn't played with a good quarterback in his two years he's been there. Yeah. I mean, you know, he's got point. Big Ben, and Ben can't throw the ball to him. I mean, he's made he made some plays for Ben two years ago as a rookie that were sensational. So, you know, I think he's got the makings. He's a big guy that can play on the outside. That's always a hard thing to find, right? Mm-hmm. Usually guys with his size don't have enough speed, explosiveness, and ability at the top of the route to win on the outside. They can get covered up. When they come inside, the matchup favors them. But I think Claypool can win in, on the outside. So I think it's really he's been hampered by not having a great quarterback. So do I, will I have him in my top 10 receivers? No, but I think he does have an arrow next to his name going up. Yeah, the talent is definitely there. Um, the game that usually st- that stands out in my mind was last year. They were taking on the Minnesota Vikings on Thursday Night Football, and it seems like he just lost focus. I don't know if he yeah. was frustrated. 
Um, that was actually one of Ben's better games, especially that second half, the way they rallied back and made that a game after going down by about four touchdowns early on in the first half. But Claypool, the talent is definitely there. Like you mentioned, big guy, athletic, can play outside. But if he can get the focus right and get all that stuff in the line and pair him with a quarterback who's capable of getting him the football, I mean, he's a productive player. I just can't put him in that elite tier because cons- from a consistency standpoint, he hasn't shown anywhere close to that to yeah. be with the uh, Adams and the Diggs and all those guys of the world. Yeah, I, I don't see that yet. But and, and, and the good luck Mitchell getting the football. I mean, you know, he's he's in a little bit of a tough spot here. Yeah. Yeah, that's a Mitchell Trubisky. You go from Ben Roethlisberger yeah, to Mitchell Trubisky, MVP your Mitch. guy. MVP Mitch, man. We'll see if he can hold on to that starting job there. Kenny Pickett actually just signed. So we now have all 32 first-round picks signed with their teams now. So uh, gone are the days of the holdouts and the training camp. I kind of miss that. those days. Those, those are fun from a content standpoint. Oh, no. Those are the worst. <laughs> I mean, those are the worst days of all. I still wake up. Lawyer, we drafted Lawyer Tillman in the first round. and, uh, and the, We traded a first round pick to get a top of the second for Lawyer Tillman. And he held out. And, and essentially, his career just got – that holdout destroyed his career. It really did. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Philip Rivers was another guy that held out for quite some time. If people, yeah, remember but I mean, one. I get that the but, quarterback, right? Yeah. You know, but I mean, like you know, I Jamarcus mean, it's Russell. Just, well, that was just all you know. I mean, well, and then how about Jamarcus Russell blaming Al? Can you imagine that he's going to blame Al? Like, take accountability, Jamarcus. Like, you were the jerk. You're having cocktail parties in the hot tub down there in the locker room. Like, seriously, you want to blame Al for that? Al was his biggest fan. I mean, yeah. Lane Kiffin didn't want to draft the guy. Lane Kiffin wanted to draft. You know, Calvin. uh, Calvin Johnson. Johnson. He wanted to draft him. You know, the scouts wanted Jamarcus, and Al wanted Jamarcus. I was not in the room. I don't want to get blamed for that. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, we'll clarify that. Michael did not want Jamarcus. (laughs) But yeah, gone are the days of the holdouts. I think Joey Bosa was the last one, but that was more a language thing that was going on there. It was all about the guarantee, which is ultimate. Yeah, it's the payback. How we pay and you know who offsets the money. So. But anyway. Yeah. So Kenny Pickett signed all 32 first round picks signed here, Michael. Um, But before we get out of the way, next week, like we mentioned, the blue chips, red chips. Yep. It's going down June 30th. We're starting off with the safeties. And I cannot wait to go on this journey with you. Good. I'm looking forward to it, too. I think it really, you know, and and I think part of this red chip, blue chip thing, too, is how to build a team. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, tonight's the NBA draft. And, you know, this is going to be fun watching all these teams and pieces move around. But the art of team building, I think, is really important. And so as you go over these blues and reds, you know, I think it's critical to understand the value of the position, what it really takes to get to the Final Four. The Final Four is the the conference championship game. To me, that's always the measuring stick of how good you are as a franchise. How do you get there? What do you need to get there? And how do you need to play against the opponents you need to play against? So to me, and it starts with understanding who the top five, top ten players are in the league. Yeah, and and we're going to go on that journey. I think that's what's made – football content really explode over these last 10 to 15 years is the interest in the team building, whether it's the draft Knicks or the people who become salary cap experts and all that. Everyone is fascinated on the team building aspect of football. In addition to the game, just being really exciting and a lot of fun to talk about. But I think that's really why we do this podcast. And it's why a lot of you guys listen and consume it is because we all want to know what it takes to build a champion as we try to do what the LA Rams did a year ago. And that's when a Super Bowl. All right, that does it for this edition of the podcast. Thank you to DraftKings. Thank you to VEASAN. Thank you to you, Michael, our producer, Stephen Bond, as always on the ones and twos. Michael, enjoy the NBA draft tonight, and I'll talk to you soon.